Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right. Well, welcome, welcome. everybody. I see Rod's got his Frappuccino Cappuccino ready to go. I've got my uh, because we're supposed to be drinking, no? I've got I've got a Johnny Carson coffee. You'll notice that there is no steam coming out of that coffee cup. All right. I feel like I'm in the middle of some very strange in joke here, but so maybe someone explain it to me afterwards. You didn't know Johnny Carson, his coffee cup. He always had a coffee cup. That thing was filled with whiskey every night. Ah, That's why there was never any steam out of the old coffee cup in the Johnny Carson show. Ah, you learn something new every day. There you go. Okay, let's let's introduce our guest, um, Rob <laughs> Rob Carver. Welcome to Resolve Riffs. Thanks so much for coming on. And um, I note that you are broadcasting from your man shed, right? <laughs> you, um, you 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 had a great series where you sort of showed. Um, pictures and stages as you uh, as you went along. You you sort of built that on your own, or at least had something meaningful to do with the construction of that, right? Yeah. So I, I built the base myself, and the the thing comes essentially as a load of pieces of wood that you have to kind of hammer together. So uh, I, I did all that, and then I had to kind of do all the finishing and the the painting and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, so probably two solid weeks of work i'd say for someone who was competent it would have been a week but for me it was two weeks also doing everything by yourself is is um not oh. it's, it's, it's recommends two people but yeah but I, I think, you know, is it like an ikea shed where you get the parts and the and the assembly instructions um it's similar-ish except it's not from ikea and you you don't end up with like 78 sort of little screws left at the end and you've no idea where the hell they go so um fortunately i, I didn't end up in that situation 
that's kind of neat. But it's great. And I, you showed the view and you, you look out and onto this sort of garden, this bucolic scene, which, um, you know, I, I'm sure is inspirational and calming as you're sitting coding and, and riding your makeshift Peloton in the background. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite nice. The, the only downside is, is we have a lot of squirrels in our garden and, um, just, you know, I'm kind of deep into a function trying to debug it and, and like really concentrating hard. And then this little rascal will kind of run across my roof and it sounds like someone playing the drums. Um, so that that's the only distraction. I realize this is like a real first world problem now um, because uh, a lot of a lot of people over the last year or so, obviously working from home brings massive distractions. But but I'm fortunate that I, I built this in the summer of 2019. So when it came to, to last year and, and I found suddenly that my, my children were home the entire time, uh, there's a good 150 feet uh, between me and them um, at all times. Uh, so uh, now they're back at school, it, it's uh, it, it's less of a problem. But certainly last year, the, having this this little refuge was was very very nice for me. Oh, and life saving! Probably yeah. life saving for them as well, to be honest. Um, yes, <laughs> I bet. Agreed. So, so Rob, I think it's yeah. useful. Well, before oh, yeah, we start, give your before disclaimer? we start, yeah. like yeah, just everybody realizes this is for entertainment purposes. So take <laughs> neither any construction advice nor any investment advice from Definitely. any of the scallywags on this call yeah. um, and uh, and just uh, leave it at that. But go ahead. Yeah, no, I just wanted to sort of introduce Rob or maybe Rob, you can kind of give us a little bit of your backstory. Um, I'm sure, you know, I always find it funny bringing guests onto this show who are much better known than we are. And, and then, you know, assuming that people don't know the guests and somehow know us. But, but I do think it's useful for you to... Um, give us a little bit of your, of your backstory. And then I want to talk some about your books, specifically smart portfolios and systematic trading. Uh, we may get into leverage trading um, a little later on, but yeah, maybe just your, your career trajectory to get us started. Um, I'm not sure I'm better known than you guys. If, if I am that, that's a serious crime because uh, you know, you're out, you're up, it's extremely good. And um, you know, it's, it, I think it's generally accepted that most people who are, trying to sell a fund and also putting out research that the quality of the research is not very much, not very good at all. Right. Because it's purely a, it's often purely a sales exercise and I'm not going to name names. Um, but it's fair to say that, that you guys are in a very small group of people who, who, you know, have a, are trying to sell a product, but also putting out research out there that's extremely high quality. So, but anyway, um, enough, enough mutual appreciation. I'm sure people didn't, didn't sign up for that. Um, Did you say well, mutual information? Wow, we're really getting into it quickly. <laughs> um, okay, um, where was I? Oh, yeah, so me. Okay, so um, I've been trading probably for 20, over 20 years now. Um, professionally, um, I started trading um, on the on the sell side for an investment bank in 2002. I did a couple of years with them uh, trading uh, exotic interest rate derivatives. Um, and then I spent a couple of years in economic research, and then I got a job with um, AHL, which is a large systematic quant CTA based in London. Um, and I did a couple of things for them. I, I started off with a new a new kind of product, which was basically a systematic kind of global tactical asset allocation type product, which is very different from what they've been known for, which is kind of trend following um, mainly. Um, so I did that for a few years and then there was a business restructuring and I was sort of promoted kind of, I guess, sort of a bit up and a bit sideways, so diagonally, um, to to be um, head of fixed income. Um, so that was running all the fixed income risk. Um, so, you know, bond futures, interest rate futures, um, 
interest rate swaps, credit default swaps, mortgage bonds, you know, you name it, all that stuff. Uh, and I did that till 2013 um, and then decided um, I had had enough of working for other people. Um, and I was in a fortunate position where I, I didn't have to anymore. So um, I, I left them. Um, and um, the last few years, I've done various things. So as, you, as you've said, I've written a few books, written three books. Um, two basically on trading, one on investing, although there is a bit of investing stuff in, in the training books as well. Um, all about doing things systematically, so using systems, using methodologies. So, you know, none of this kind of looking at charts and looking for, you know, inverted vipers or any of this stuff and or, uh, you know, any of this kind of stuff. Pure, purely rules-based. Vomiting camels. The vomiting camels. Camel. The, the vomiting famous vomiting camel, of course. Yeah, which... <laughs> Um, so none of that stuff, but so stuff that the way I like to describe it, it can be coded up, but doesn't necessarily have to be coded up. And in fact, my long only portfolio is is run using rules, but not without any automation. I just do the trading manually myself and it's quite low frequency. So that's that's fine. I I'd probably trade that once a month. Um, and then I've, I've got a, a systematic futures portfolio that's a pure, fully automated kind of, you know, um, that trades just futures um so so yeah so I, I obviously do my own trading although um mostly i'm not trading mostly i'm writing code or doing research and all this this stuff that leads to ultimately the the, the computer doing the, the trading for me mostly apart from this kind of once, once a month rebalancing exercise um i do a bit of uh, teaching at university um as, as we were talking about i, I did a, a lecture this morning which is why i I'm, I'm dressed relatively smartly for me. Um, my normal pandemic kind of workwear is is obviously a lot a lot more casual, like most people. Um, and uh, yeah, so so that that's what I've been doing for the last few years. That's fantastic. So actually, um, if you'll indulge me, I'd love to to get a sense for when you arrived at the conclusion that systematic thinking was the right approach to markets, because. You know, I think I, I certainly came to markets with very much a discretionary view, and I try to sort of be figuring out the macro um, dynamics and trading off off those themes. And it took you know a couple of frying pans to the face before I I realized that systematic thinking was really the only coherent approach to complex uh, systems. But how did you walk that journey? Um, yeah, it's a, a weird one because um, so my first exposure to the industry was when I was still at university and, and in my penultimate year summer, I, I did an internship actually at AHL, although I didn't subsequently go on working for them after I graduated, which is another story entirely. So so that was my first exposure to the systematic industry. That was actually my first job effectively in finance, you know, completely in finance, although I had done a bit of PA trading before that uh, with a very small amount of capital that I had. Um, as a poor university student, um, so I, I kind of that was my first exposure to to and, and that that seemed like a very logical way of doing things. Um, and at the same time, I, I read a book by a guy called Thomas Bass called The Predictors. I don't know if you've come across it. I've mentioned it a couple of times in interviews before, and I'm surprised by how few people have come across this book. But um, it's probably it's it's a nonfiction book, and it's a book about a um, hedge fund called the Prediction Company, which was subsequently bought by O'Connor and then by UBS, um, run by Doyne Farmer, who's one of the kind of and, and some other people, but he's the most famous, who's one of the um, the kind of leaders in sort of chaos theory, and he now he, he's now uh, teaching at, at Oxford actually. 
Um, but I read that book and and it was a very very well written book and very interesting and it made it sound like a you know a, a kind of um, I don't know it's something about when when you're training systematically it's it's less um, it, it's more structured and rigorous but but it's somehow cooler to, to someone like me anyway and more fun because you're not having to the kind of thinking that you're doing is completely different from the kind of thinking you're doing when you're making trading decisions. So when I was working in a bank. Um, I did not enjoy that at all. Um, and I was working actually in a relatively difficult part of the bank in terms of the fact that we weren't just buying and selling, say, spot FX. We know we're pricing complex derivatives. So it's quite it's quite a mentally challenging job, but it was an intellectually stimulating job. So it was like I, uh, the best description I've given um, is that imagine that you've been told to solve, solve Sudoku puzzles while 12 fat guys are yelling at you. That That's what it's like. <laughs> To me, that's what working on a trading floor was was like, um, and I, and some of them weren't fat actually, but but you know the physically intimidating people, right? Um, so so that that was that. So I had this kind of brief exposure to this really nice, interesting, fun industry called systematic trading, and I had two years of hell in an investment bank doing the discretionary trading, um, and then you know I, a couple of years later, I I got back into systematic trading, and and it, it was it was just like. I mean, at this point, I was, I guess, um, how old was I? I was probably, uh, I was like 30 years old or something like that. 32, I think I was 32 years old. And it was just like, this, this is, this, I felt like, felt like coming home. It's like, right, this is, this is the industry I, or the, what I want to do. This it suits my skill set. You know, I can I not understand why most people choose to trade within a discretionary fashion because it's something that's superficially appealing and, and, and interesting and cooler and, Let's face it, no one's going to make any films about people working, doing our job. You know, there's going to be, you can't really see you like, I don't know, um, Tom Cruise, like, like leaning over a computer and going in that Tom Cruise voice, like, you know, guys, I think the algo is broken. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not, there's no drama there. There, re- there really isn't. Um, it, it's, it's not sexy. It's not cool. It's not interesting. But to me, it's actually, it is, it is cool. It is interesting. It is sexy. It's intellectually interesting. And, 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 and yeah. So for me, it wasn't one of the, you, you sometimes hear of people who start trading in a discretionary fashion and gradually come to realize the systematic is better. And I guess, Adam, that, that's kind of maybe your story. You hear that a lot. Um, and, but, but um, for me, it was a more a case of, actually you know it was just a kind of blinding on the obvious this is the way you should do it now the more interesting thing actually is while i was working at ahl if you look at my personal account trading um, which obviously was limited by compliance restrictions and that kind of stuff it was extraordinarily unsystematic um it was a you know my individual personal portfolio was a complete mess um and that's because i i had two problems firstly i didn't really have time to kind of think about that. I was worrying about my day job, which was obviously more important. Um, but also I was exposed to this constant flow of market news and ideas. And I'd be like, oh, that, wow, there's this stuff on the street about this stock. Well, I'll buy some of that or some of this or some of that. So I actually probably end, I ended up massively overtrading my own personal portfolio. And it wasn't until I actually retired, I kind of sat down, looked at the spreadsheet with something like 120 tickers on it and, and, thought, and actually then began to piece together a, a way of trading this systematically using, ironically, all the skills and knowledge I already had from, from my day job. So that's an interesting that's backstory. When you talked about the 
25 traders yelling at you while trying to do the Sudoku uh, method. Was you, you mentioned that you didn't quite like that. Even though it is, I would imagine it's more like um, the mathematical problem is kind of a solvable problem, but you have a lot of emotions involved in the trading of that to the market. Is that what you d disliked about it? The fact that it was emotional? Um, I mean, there wasn't really time to think. Like it was the ironic, you had to think kind of a certain way and do a certain thing which is think basically you had to think very quickly under pressure to solve problems that were sometimes quite complex um often the the the, the thing i actually found fun was the fact that okay you've got 10 minutes to price this trade there's no way you it's it's a new kind of trade we've never priced it before there is no way you can get a quant to go away in a room for six months and come out and then with a french accent because all the quants we employ were french say you know, well, uh, you know, this is the most elegant, perfect, optimal solution with all the factors considered. <laughs> you you had 10 minutes and all you could really generally do was glue together two different spreadsheets and price something that was probably 99% correct. And, and hope that you hadn't missed something that would end up blowing up the bank because of some unforeseen risk. So actually, I found that quite fun, but it, it wasn't really... Um, it wasn't really giving you time to actually think deeply about... I didn't feel I was actually developing any trading skills, really, to be honest with you. Um, because there wasn't the time to actually think about the markets, but you know, think at a more strategic level. It just wasn't there at all. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, I, I, this this is the thing. Everyone, the ironic thing is, a lot of people want to work on trading floors and investment banks, right? I mean, maybe not so much now. It's not such an attractive job, but certainly twenty years ago, it was a job that you know thirty percent of my graduating class wanted to do, um, and I was the only. I was the guy doing it, and I actually hated it. Yeah, and now that you're I, trading I, your PA account and systematized it, is all the emotion gone, or are you still doing it? Are you still feeling the feels? Okay, that that comment deserves sharing. Keanu Reeves isn't going to star in the covariance matrix. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, that's a great. That's, that's magic. Some good stuff. Brilliant. Good. Well done. On you, Matt. On you. You're not going to show that comment. Come on, let's that, put that. I'm sorry to interrupt the. The flow no, no, actually, if um, any Hollywood producers are watching this, this, this uh, YouTube channel, I'm sure there are probably a couple. Um, there is a, there is a very good book by um, called the fear index, um, which is actually about a guy who works in a systematic fund. Unbelievably. And it actually is a very good book. It's a real kind of thriller, exciting thriller. And, and so there is a film there potentially in that book, if someone wants to make that. And I am available as a script consultant at my normal rates, of course. Oh, dude, we um, want you as a leading man. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, perhaps not. I don't think I don't think it would be as marketable. I, I still think maybe Tom Cruise or Keanu Reeves would would, would do better. Um, back to your question, uh, which I haven't forgotten. Um, emotion and trading. I mean, it's still true, actually. I mean, even yesterday, I was re rebalancing um, my portfolio, um, and um, I'd actually I actually made a mistake. So a couple of days ago, I bought too much of a particular fund, and I went. I went. I, I, I was still because because it's just after the end of the UK tax year, so I have to do a bit more rebalancing than normal. And uh, I went and looked at. Oh, I bought too much of this. I really ought to sell this down, and and then you know put it into the fund that it was supposed to go in to begin with. And I got some other stuff to do as well, so it wasn't you know like correcting one mistake. And I was and I looked at that, and the price of the of the the ETF had dropped by like two cents you know, um, for a loss that as a percentage of my net worth is insignificant. Could I pull the trigger? 
<laughs> you know, like, could I take that that few hundred pound loss, <laughs> which which also actually in a way is a good thing because it was a taxable account, so it was a tax loss. You know, so actually it wasn't wasn't all that bad. Um, and I was actually like, and it wasn't. It was about half an hour of me sitting there going, maybe it'll go up, maybe it'll just go up a little bit, and I'll be able to to to, to, to close it. And and after half an hour, I thought, this is what the. I kind of got a copy of one of my own books and I beat myself over the head with it until I was <laughs> like sensible, pulled the trigger, closed the tray, took the tiny loss, did the rebalance correctly. But so, yeah, even even I, after all these years, still, you know, the emotion's still there. It's very so hard to get rid of it. I thought your pulling forehead that, looked a little flatter today. <laughs> yeah. Pulling on That's, that, it's, on that it's thread. It's the condiment more. thread. Go ahead. Uh, pulling on that thread just one more time. I, I know there's a chapter in your book where you talk about having thought systematically. <laughs> about purchasing stocks when you're in a panic and and you talk specifically about 08 i would love to to hear that story again um <laughs> and share it with the audience and i and then the follow-up to that is how'd you do in the COVID crisis uh, so the 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 story is basically that it was actually uh, q109 um and um it felt to me like we were at the bottom of you know we were at the bottom and i thought well where where is the best place to put my money in the uk banking shares because they've been just massively beaten down as you would expect in a in a you know in a debt and leverage crisis of course um and i i barclay barclay and also i i like understand banks as a business and i can read the balance sheets and stuff whereas if you were to ask me to do that with insurance company i would struggle so um i thought well i'll buy shares in a few banks the biggest share would have been in barclays because i felt that was in the best position and as it turned out you know they raised money privately rather from the government so that that would subsequently was obviously the case. Um, so the, the point was the point to make here is, yeah, it was a discretionary trading decision, but actually it was a good one. The problem is that when it actually came to pulling the trigger, I panicked. Um, and I my timing was perfect. I probably was within like 3% of the bottom, something like that. And I, I, I bought the, the moment some really, really bad GDP numbers had come out in the UK just astonishingly bad GDP numbers. And the market tanked as a whole, the banking shares sold off. Uh, I thought, well, this is all, this is not new news. You know, this doesn't change my thesis. I'm going to, I should go ahead and buy these things. And I just could not force myself to buy in the size of trade that I'd originally intended to trade. And I just cut everything in, in by 90%. And I bought one-tenth of the position I intended to take. Um, and yeah, that, those shares probably went up by something like 350% in six months. So, the reason I include that in my book is to show that even if you make good trading decisions, and I'm not, I'm, you know, by any means am I someone who makes those kinds of decisions all the time? Absolutely not. Um, you, you can, you still need some kind of system in place to manage your risk and manage your position size. Um, I, I doesn't matter who, you know, if you're some kind of genius trader, I still believe that that is where you should use systems. Um, you know, most, and I still, but most people probably shouldn't should use systems for everything, including deciding when to buy and sell. But if you do, if you do think you can make those discretionary calls, you should still use have a system in place um, to, to to size them. So, so it's a, that's a really good point, and a point that I think is um, something that we we could talk about a bit more. Jason Josephiak has a wonderful framework, uh, sort of a four uh, four legged chair, if you will, where you know you're harnessing beta. So uh, you know, and then and then you've got some prediction that you might want to do some tilts. Um, and then you've got a bit of a protection side if you want to do some tail hedging. And then lastly, there's opportunistic. And, and this weird opportunistic bucket 
is really quite hard because opportunistic can be as you you encountered a particular situation where you had a fairly high degree of confidence that in fact there's a number of things that the models are actually not aware of your models only know inputs to the models are and you as a pm or over overseeing your own own portfolio do have a wider more pervasive view of the horizon so I mean, how do you, can we delve into how you do that either, you know, with a particular sector that looks particularly good? I mean, this was a banking sector in the middle of a crisis. Great. You could look at, you know, tobacco stocks in 1999. You could look at uranium stocks today after a decade of, you know, just uh, being absolutely obliterated. Um, like, how do you, how do you work that in? I mean, there's different ways of doing it. And actually, I think another sort of paradigm that's quite nice and is, is um, often people say with your you know, financial advisors say you should reserve 5% of your money for, for just gambling. Right. Um, so you, you, for me, I think it's okay to, to say, right, most of my money is going to be run in this very structured and rigorous way. For most people, that probably means passive, you know, a diversified portfolio of passive ETFs. Yeah. And if you've got enough money, maybe some stocks. Um, and, and maybe you want to go beyond them about an into tactical asset allocation and, and momentum of the stuff I do. Fine. Um, but the, the, the point is that it's our human instinct, firstly, for two things. Firstly, it's our human instinct to have a bit of fun. I mean, you know, and to be interested in things. And I, I said earlier when I was working, um, you know, in the industry, there's this constant stream of ideas and stuff coming in. So effectively, my entire portfolio consisted of this sort of discretionary fun kind of interesting stuff. I wouldn't even go as far as to call it opportunistic. That that's dignifying it with a name it does not deserve. That that implies, you know, a level of skill and rigor that was not there, with the possible exception of the trade we just talked about. Um, so I I think um, that um, it makes a lot of sense to to say actually, yeah, most of the time I'm going to run my money in this particular way, but I'm going to reserve a certain proportion of my risk capital for things that just come up, um, and they may be things that are outright gambles. Uh, in which case it should probably be quite a small amount of money, um, maybe 5%, maybe 1%, whatever your risk appetite is, whatever you can afford to lose. It should be money you can afford to lose. Um, or, and, um, you know, it's. I mean, it, it, there's sort of a link here between that and the kind of Nassim Taleb sort of barbell idea, isn't there, you know, where you, you yep. preserve a proportion of your money for kind of out-of-the-money options you think are cheap effectively. Um, and then um, on, and the, the, um, it could also be thing, opportunities, things that could come up. And that depends very much on, on firstly, on, on how much interest and time you're willing to spend on that as a bucket. So it might be that, that you just keep 5% of your risk capital aside and every year or so something comes up. Or it might be that you're spending more time on this and actually it's a quarter of your risk capital. That That's fine. Um, but the, the, the main point is, firstly, it should be a strict portion of risk capital. You shouldn't just suddenly sell everything and go and buy, you know, um, GameStop because it's, it's that's the fun idea that's crossed your desk today. Um, and the second thing is that, that even within that that special bucket, you should still be applying some kind of system in terms of risk management and position management. So so take a allocate a particular portion, step one. You've got an opportunistic bucket. You're stating that explicitly. You uh, put a percentage aside that you're comfortable with. I suppose you'd also be able to rebalance that you know, back to the, your, you know, so your balance between opportunistic and sort of the other systematic buckets that you might have. Yeah. I mean, it, it might not be a fixed percentage. It might. So actually let, let me go back to the unanswered question about COVID. 
because actually that's a really good example. Because right. with COVID, it wasn't so much the case that I had, oh, let, I've got 10% of my capital here. I'm going to I'm gonna put that into a COVID-specific trade. What it was was actually I had my normal kind of portfolio rebalancing process. Um, and But I wanted, on, on top of that, pulling the lever mainly between equities and bonds, although also in individually within asset classes as well. I wanted to override that to some extent to reflect the fact that I had basically had an opinion on the likely shape of market movements. Um, so my main kind of input into my sort of long only asset allocation bonds equities is a 12 month momentum signal. I knew that would be way too slow to, to reflect what was I could actually see happening, like coming in, coming in at me at 100 miles an hour. So the way the way I describe my discretionary trading ability is every 10 years I can I'm, I, and this has happened twice, so it's you know, probably not statistically significant. But maybe every ten years, if there's something really big happening, I'm, 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 I seem to have twice now been able to catch the top and the bottom of that. Actually, three times if you count the tech, the tech boom in 2000. Although actually, I had no money then to trade with, so you know, I couldn't couldn't commit to that decision. So what I did last year was in February, I started pulling the handle on my reducing my basically re reducing my risk reallocating from, you know, risky assets um, like equities towards, you know, U.S. treasuries um, and doing that in advance of my tactical asset allocation model. So I, I, I basically, let's say my tactical allocation model was, was going from, let's say, an 80-20 portfolio and was gradually moving down. I was accelerating that, but within limits. So I wasn't just, you know, oh, my God, the world's going to win. I'm going to sell all my stocks now. I didn't. I didn't do that. I, I set myself a, a a kind of a a limit. So it wasn't really. It wasn't a proportion of my capital that was my opportunistic bucket. It was a proportion of my risk allocation decision. And then on March the twenty third, I had this really strong feeling that that we were going to go back up again. That we were at the bottom. I think I was one day out. So again, I accelerated my. I then I then switched the risk back into equities. And, and again, this was going against what my model would have wanted to do because my model was using 12-month momentum that was still showing, you know, a completely different signal. But again, I didn't I didn't go, you know, I didn't pull the handle and go from zero to 100 in one day. Right. It was a, it was a, a, gradual, yeah. a gradual relocation, but it was just it was just speeding up what the model would have done anyway. So it was it was it was, a, you know, essentially taking some of my system, taking that away from the system allocating that to discretionary risk management decision, but basically otherwise following all the rules of my system. And the difference between that and 09 was I felt very confident in what I was doing because I knew that I was still, because I was doing it in a size that I knew that the worst case scenario is, was if I completely, you know, I'd made completely the wrong decision was it wasn't going to be the end of the world. I'd underperform what my system would have done anyway if I'd made the wrong decision, but it wouldn't have been dramatic, you know. Conversely, of course, I didn't end up making a lot extra, you know, so I probably made an extra 2% last year from that little discretionary allocation based on my whole portfolio size, which, you know, is, is better than a kick in the teeth. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, but it could have been a 2% loss, which I would have been okay with. Right. And it reflects the humility of you're making decisions overlaying your model that are probabilistic. Mm -hmm not deterministic where, oh, the world's going to end or, oh, the world's going to be okay. So I'm switching hundred percent back and forth, but it's a bit of a dimmer switch, maybe overlay where you're saying I'm 
going to impart some of my experience, expertise, and judgment through the execution of my of my models. Probably would make sense to to have a bit of a checklist. I'll bet you that that checklist for you is just it's in your bones because you have so much experience with respect to some expertise and judgment and having done these calculations so many times, you're very aware of where your models will have some blind spots. Um, is there any obvious checklist points that you kind of go through mentally in your head when you see these opportunities that allow you to come to these conclusions or is that? Again, I, I feel like I'm, I'm dressing up like two, two lucky lucky strikes as a you know i don't i you know it's like oh, I don't of course it, it's going to go wrong at some point but if you have yeah, 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 yeah. you know this no, no, happen I mean, another three times and this, maybe yeah no this is this is something that's so rare for me that that i i don't really feel i i i can tell you yes you know these are the factors i looked at when making this decision it is and i hate to, i mean my reputation's ruined after this podcast right <laughs> that's why it's, it's live we do that yeah, it's all intuition <laughs> Yeah, this this particular decision was was literally intuition, and I could tell you the things I was looking at, but it was the same thing everybody else was looking at. What made me decide that the the price was going to go from the, the, the on the twenty third of March, whenever it was, and you know you can check Twitter. I did tweet and say this is the bottom, in my opinion. Um, the the um, when I, what what specific thing was it I was looking at that made me think this is the bottom? I I couldn't tell you honestly, couldn't tell you, and and you know I. I think the the main lesson from this story isn't that Rob is some kind of genius no. picker of market tops and bottoms, and this is the secret checklist that he uses to pick them. It's actually sometimes you ha your intuition can be a powerful thing, but you've got to use it within the confines of a system. And if you do that, that means that you can make a, make a decision knowing that your your downside is is limited to a degree you're comfortable with if you're wrong. And that is the main difference for me between right. 09 and 2020. And Rob, huge, would you huge, mind huge spending a minute on just to save your reputation a little bit? Like you're putting huge guardrails around your intuition, so I think that that's um, well said. Right, a lot of people should take away from that. You know, lar much more systematic and a very small uh, intuition with a very high confidence in your intuition, which leads to a very small adjustment in the systematic portfolio. So I think that's a a great point. Sorry, Adam. Over to you. No, no, all, all good. I just was wondering if Rob, because you did work in the the OPM industry for many years, um, and so I'm just wondering if you could sort of comment on the um, intuitive or opportunistic decision making process uh, through the prism of of institutional fund management, right? Like if you're an, you know, let's not use AHL because you 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 work there, but if you're if you're a large systematic institution and having worked at those institutions, you know, what did you observe in terms of that type of decision-making and, and what is your general thinking on the responsibility of the portfolio manager to, you know, to, to be able to observe that there are things happening that the systems aren't aware of, but also operate within the, the, the limits of the offering memoranda and, and those types of things. Any, any thoughts there? Yeah, it's a good point because you know what I just did. If I'd done that at HL, I would have been fired, and right and rightly so. You know, um, the the discretionary levers that that you would be pulling would be more things like how much should we allocate to this model? Should we turn this model on or off? Um, you know, um, should we trade this market in what size? A, a lot of those decisions will have quantitative underpinnings, but at the end of the day, it's often a human decision to actually call the final numbers and. 
um, and and the, the I think actually this is where potentially um, I it's diff, it's more difficult in the institutional environment because there's a whole different set of pressures res, with other people's money that you don't have with with your own, and things like for example year ends take on an importance that they don't really have for me. So, you know, wanting to get a good calendar year performance, I mean certainly. And this is well known. I'm not giving you any secrets. But when I was working in an investment bank, if uh, we were working on calendar years, if it got to November and you'd had a good year, you took no risk. I mean, you you basically like hedged everything, like just completely hedged everything. And and if a client came along with 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 you know, you tried to win no, no client business at all that would result in you taking any risk because you wanted you've made your budget plus five percent that you're going to get paid. This only downside from there, you just you just sit on that. Um, and even in a, in a systematic business, um, there is potentially the pressure there because a year, you know if you've got looking at you, you've got you obviously year end numbers are in the report, and all, there are things like awards which you know rightly or wrongly have some currency as well, and they, they're often based on calendar year performance. So there would potentially be the temptation to re, to reduce risk towards year end potentially, um, and there are there are ways you can do that without actually you know you can do it by. There are ways that could you could do that potentially, and, and you're kind of in that big grey area between fully sourced to systematic and never touching anything and fully discretionary. And there is a big grey area there, and I think it's misleading to pretend that PMs don't have a degree of discretionary control. They can't control the position size. They can't do what I just did with my own money, but they can control a lot of levers that, that res- can result in things happening um, that, w- that would otherwise be the case. Um, so I will, I will tell you um, a story about somebody I know um, and they were, who were working at a fund, and I won't reveal the fund or the person's name or the name of the person they were speaking to. But, but basically, um, they had a position on, um, and the, the the someone came over and have, they were having a conversation about this position, and, and this person said, "Well, you know, I think you should, um, I think you should cut the risk on that position." And, and the guy said, "Well, that's reasonable to what level?" And the guy said, "Until it's a short." Um, now, to me, that's crossing the line. I mean, the moment you're, the moment you're, you're, it's one thing to say, oh, this, this, the model doesn't know about a particular risk. Therefore, this position is too big. We, you know, we we should reduce the size of this position. The moment you're changing the sign of the position, you've you've moved from risk management to basically, you know, discretionary trading through the through the back door. So, oh, yeah. there's there's a clear line for me. But before that, there's probably probably a big grey area. Now, um, the the other thing is that. Um, it's very difficult if let's say something's coming and everyone knows it's let's take an example let's take um, um a, the us election last year or brexit some there's some big event in the calendar that's coming um now if you take no action you don't make any overrides to your system at all you just let the system do its thing which is the pure thing you should do and you then lose money your clients are going to come back to you and say you had a fiduciary duty to look after my money it was clear as this was going to happen um, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't have let this happen. Now, Amen. for me, uh, yeah. So for me, that's <laughs> that's like for me, that's like. Well, hang on a second. You're impl- you're basically paying us to put money into a system. Um, that means we shouldn't be doing this. Now, of course, if if our fund had made money through Brexit, no one would have been complaining. Everyone would have been happy, and we'd be patted on the back, and we'd get we'd get awards and stuff. So, so there's that level of pressure as well. And even if clients don't say that to you, I think there's always that feeling in the back of your head. And perhaps there should be a feeling in the back of your head that this is somebody else's money and you're going to be more r- r- risk averse potentially. And I don't mean just in terms of 
pure like economic utility of like choosing where your risk target should be. I mean, your behavior will be more risk averse than if it was your potentially your own money and you didn't have that extra set of pressures. Very yep. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's really Explaining good to somebody else is always a challenging dimension. And I so, think also the fund management industry positions your role as you write an offering memorandum and your responsibility is to execute on the what you set out in the in the offering memorandum, right? But from the investor's perspective, while they technically bought a strategy that is described in the offering memorandum, the implicit purchase is you know, I want you to make me money, right? So it's not, I want you to run this strategy. It's, I want you to use your expertise to my benefit, right? And and so there's a there's an implicit sort of conflict, an agency conflict that is actually explicitly set out in the regulations of the investment yeah. business that um, that I think is not, not widely recognized or discussed. Um, now you've spent- and, it, and it's different from say the relationship, say in a bank, you know, working on a trading desk, because if you're working on a trading desk in a bank and you say make unexpected profits, you, you're going to be called up. Like they're going to be like saying, "What the hell are you doing? You've exceeded your risk limits." They're, they're, you know, they're they big, and that's because there's a much, much more. Well, firstly, the contractual relationship is stronger, obviously, because they're paying you, and you know, and so on. They have a lot of control and visibility over what you're doing. Um, but but also because there is that mutual understanding of of why you're there, and it's a very it's a very very clear relationship. I agree. I think with with the fund management thing, it's much more difficult. It's like do this, but don't lose money. Uh, okay, well, what if those things are in conflict? You know, and they sometimes are. What do I do? You know, I I, I can't predict the future. I don't know whether whether I, which option I should choose. And I I you know I'm I'm always going to be taking a risk that I will lose you money if I do exactly what I should be doing. So yeah, I'm in complete agreement with that. Yeah, that reminds me of Ted's Ted's comment of be the same but different. <laughs> yeah, be the same. Uh, Ted Sadies was on last week at Capital Allocators, and one of the quotes from one of the portfolio managers is, "Clients want you you us to be the same but different." Yeah, don't drift yeah. out of your style bucket, but make more yeah. money than the other guys. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Ted, there was one thing you mentioned on the discretionary side for systematic managers, and that was that a lot of the decisions are made on whether a system should be turned on or off or a market should be uh, taken off the roster or on the roster. I'm curious to know what that means from a discretionary perspective. Do they use data on it or do they? is it more like gut-based from the investment committee perspective? Because I've seen it in BlackRock. I've seen it in AHL. At least I've heard stories about all that. Uh, I'm curious to know what you've, your experience there has been. I mean, my my opinion is is any time if you're working in a systematic business and you're making a decision and you're having to make qualitative judgments, you need to systematize that, right? Yeah. You should not be making so I in a good in a good shop and and um, I'm, I'm probably allowed to say this. I think AHL is one of the better shops in this respect. Um, you, you, the first time you make a decision, it might be very qualitative, but if that's a decision you're going to have to make, again, you should probably systematize it. And I'll give you an example. Um, we were very worried um, in, in sort of 2011 about interest rates getting very, very low. Oh, how naive we were. Um, <laughs> and we, we were particularly worried about this weird phenomenon in, in kind of obscure parts of Europe like Switzerland, where interest rates actually were getting very close to zero and possibly even negative. And we thought, well, how this, this clearly is... I mean, it, negative interest rates doesn't, I mean, what is this magical mystery word? This makes no sense. Again, how naive we were. 
Um, uh, but um, we, so the first, we had to make a judgment about whether to stop trading. Um, I think it was the Euro Swiss LIBOR future, which was approaching a price of 100, which meant the rate was about to go below zero. So we we were like, we had this kind of long discussions. And in the end, actually, I built, uh, and, and I built a model basically, which um, automatically reduced our position as interest rates approach zero in a particular market. And we had long debates about whether that limit should, you know, where, where that threshold should be, whether it should be different for each market, because obviously in Japan, they'd had very low interest rates for a much longer period than in, say, the US. Um, you know, I, I made the, I decided that it should be kind of fixed for all countries, um, which is simpler as well as avoiding overfitting. And actually, in retrospect, was the right decision because, you know, we've seen interest rates come down in the US as well to historically low levels. Um, but then that was the important point here is that was now a system that was it wasn't necessarily a piece of code. We didn't have to systematize it in that way, but it meant that if anyone had any discussion about whether we should turn a market off or reduce a position because of interest rate re- interest rates being very low, then we would say, well, we have this procedure in place. So if a client asked about it, we could say, well, we have this procedure in place. We have a system in place. So it's no longer, you'd no longer got a load of guys sitting around a table trying to make a discretionary decision, which could be subject to biases and, and so on and so forth. So you try and you try and systematize it. So, you know, there, I can think of many other examples. So for example, Markets where volatility got very low, which has a couple of effects. Firstly, it means your leverage increases because we're volatility sizing our positions. Secondly, it means generally trading costs increase because the the you know the, the market's getting less volatile, but the tick size is not getting any smaller. So you're still paying the same spread. Risk adjusted, that spread is now much bigger and more. So it's a more costly market to trade. So you'd want to get out of those markets. Again, we we you know the first time we had big kind of decisions about it, then we put in place a system saying right the moment the volatility drops below this point, then then we start cutting our position and we wait for it to go up to this level before we put it back in again. So, so that that's how you can do it. I mean, obviously there are always going to be decisions coming up that are, you know, non systematic and, you know, so they often relate to things that are not necessarily very market specific, like things like credit risk. You know, like. Do you, maybe there's a market you could only trade with one. Pro- we had this issue. There was a market we we could only trade through MF Global. There were rumours on the street that MF Global were in trouble. Mr. Corzine was getting a bit a bit handy with the gambling chips on on the casino table. Um, so we had to stop trading that market. And that you know there was that was not a quantitative decision. That was purely like this is a very specific business risk because these guys are going down. That's a great answer. Thank you. Amazing, really. So lots of fantastic insights there. Totally. How I was wondering how much of the um, the thinking that informs your strategies today um, was pulled very directly, sort of from the the, the general framework um, that you were using at AHL, right? Like, um, and and ha- and or sort of. If that's a harder question to answer for, um, you know, disclosure reasons, then maybe how has your thinking evolved um, since since leaving AHL, and what sort of thinking are you applying today that that maybe um, you weren't applying back then, and and how do you you know do you have a framework for how to think about how your thinking should evolve over time and in, in sort of a in a way that reduces the amount of bias that you're bringing to the table. Yeah. Um, so in terms of my actual pure trading system, my, my futures trading system is 
not dissimilar from what AHL were running, certainly when I left. Um, the main the main differences are there. there's no kind of proprietary signals in there. It's all stuff that is very well known on the street, pretty much. Um, um, the the um, the the sort of um, the long only stuff is obviously um, quite different in in, the, in 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 one respect. In that obviously it's long only, so you're doing a completely different. You know, you're, it's a different kind of setup. Um, the, the the commonalities are obviously around the idea of for making forecasts. I think one one thing that is in my system that a lot of people really find surprising is this idea of forecasts, a risk adjusted forecast of return future returns, which is something that's very much straight out of the AHL system and a very similar CTAs. Um, so the idea is that that you don't just take binary long short positions. You know, you're continuously adjusting your positions depending on how strong a trend or a carry signal is. Um, and the, the the advantage of doing that that way is it means you can use the same kind of thinking in a long only system as well. So that's how I do my you know my my, my asset allocation, for example, long short that we were talking about earlier, when I'm not ignoring it, of course, because of COVID. Um, so the, the the kind of basic kind of theoretical building blocks, you know, are you know things that I I guess you could say I learned at AHL rather than sort of direct copies. I think the main the main difference is that I've tried to become much more rigorous in thinking about things like, um, I guess, uncertainty in terms of back tests and so on and so forth. So, um, interestingly, um, so when I decided to leave AHL, we we the kind of conversation was, well, can you hang around for a bit as a bit of a handover? But on the other hand, um, you know, we don't really. You, you, there's not really anything for you to do. So obviously, there's a handover that takes a certain amount of time. You know, it, it, there's you want clients to be handed over and make sure the clients are happy and make it clear this is not a kind of, you know, this is this is a sort of very planned and gradual transition and make sure it's all nice and smooth. But actually, in terms of what you're actually going to do, you know, what do you want to do? So, so I, I I came up with this this project that was was basically about um, doing conditional fitting. So normally when we fit our models, we look at all of history and treat it all equally. But one big question that was that was still around in 2013 was actually how will CTAs do when interest rates rise? Because a lot of historic CTA performance had been has been in the bond in bonds and actually just being long bond futures or long interest rate futures is, was a one-way bet. Um, and a lot of the, the the you know the kind of raw shark ratio was 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 basically coming from the fact that the, there was an asset that was going up, we were long it, and that that was that was all there was to it. What happens when that asset starts going down? Can you can you or should you fit your systems differently? Um, and um, I think Adam actually last time we spoke, I, I did a blog article that basically did a similar kind of piece of research, um, and we talked about that a bit. So I won't go into too much detail about it. But the key point about this project was. It really brought home to me um, how when people made very confident statements like, well, obviously, if interest rates are going to rise, then, you know, trading fixed income with momentum is going to do badly. Um, You should be doing something else instead. If you actually look to the data, it was so it was so much uncertainty around around, say, let's say let's fit a model that that works when interest rates are falling let's fit another model when interest rates are rising yeah there was some difference between them and there were the patterns you would expect but they weren't that different and they weren't that different because there was still so much uncertainty there um that the these very confident predictions people were making were wrong so what's always amused me is that 
people in the systematic industry, including myself, many, many times um, spend most of their lives, you know, working with with statistics and data and having a much better understanding of statistical uncertainty than the average person will then ver- sort of make a, effectively make a point forecast and say, I'm 100% confident that you should turn off this model because interest rates are going to rise, for example. Um, so I, the main difference in my my thinking, and I think this has been helped a lot by the fact that I dare to say I don't have to speak to clients anymore um, and I don't have to deal with that pressure, the OPM pressure that we've been talking about. It's allowed me to think much more clearly and honestly about how little I know and to build um, my, my everything around my systems to reflect that. So, you know, simple example is that if you're using something like, um, say, a 12-month momentum to allocate between equities and bonds to tilt your, you know, your your um, allocation away from a strategic allocation of, say, 60-40, um, there are people out there who've written books saying you should go, you know, zero to 100 and back again, right? Not naming any names. But if you actually... If you actually look at the amount of the amount of confidence and uncertainty that that momentum signal gives you, it's nowhere near enough that you should be going from zero to one hundred. Um, you know, you might be going at a push to be going from say sixty forty, be going to forty sixty or eighty twenty, but no further. Um, you know, and that's a really simple example of how you you should bring that uncertainty of I call it the uncertainty of the past. Everyone is about the uncertainty of the future, but actually. There's a lot of uncertainty in the past because we we measure we measure things and we measure parameters and we we test things. But actually, you know, you do simple exercises like Monte Carlo's and more sophisticated things, and you can see there's actually a huge amount of uncertainty in terms of what happened in the past. And you can and you should use that. Otherwise, you know, why are we here as systematic investors and systematic traders? Of course, you should use that information. But you've got to understand the limits of it and and how far you can actually push yourself towards doing something very dramatic. Um, bearing it like turning off a model or like pushing your equity allocation to 100%, bearing in mind that, that yeah, not the future's uncertain, well, that's a given, but the past is also uncertain as well. And, the, you know, the COVID trade is a perfect example of that because, you know, I, I made 2% on, on what was basically an absolutely perfect, almost perfect market call. I think I got the, I was two weeks late on the sell and I was one day early on the buy and it made a difference to 2% of my portfolio because the amount of different, the amount of things I changed reflected the fact that that I really had you know I had a lot of uncertainty about what was going to happen in the future, but I had a lot of uncertainty also about how confident I could be about the predictions I was making. That resonates really, really deeply with um, with the learning trajectory I think that we've all experienced. And you know, if you want if you want to get a, a sense of what this looks like at home. Um, and you've got, a, you know, even some simple trading systems and, and we've run some simple examples and I know you have too, Rob, but just try to, for example, take five trend following systems and every year based on the historical performance of the entire trading history up to that point, try to use any sort of statistical tools to determine which ones you should emphasize or de-emphasize going forward. And you know, you'll just see that it is almost impossible, right? There's at the, at the extreme limits, you know, very, very short term or very, very long term, you might be able to sort of identify where some of the soft boundaries might be on, on those, but, you know, you give up so much in diversification by trying to concentrate in, in the right one. And 
the information you have to make those decisions is just so weak that the the realization currently dominates the the precision. Um, and I know you brought that to bear in your handcrafting process, which which um, we we really like. But I want to I want to also dig into something because you kind of glossed over this in your um, in your last comments, which were great. But this whole idea of fitting a model, right? Like, say say more about that because there's there's so much that goes into that that actually has a lot of discretion in, in how you think about fitting models. So how do you think about, so let's say you've got, I think you mentioned a 12 month momentum model or something, or pick one, doesn't, doesn't really matter, but some sort of signal. How do you think about the model fitting process there? I mean, one, one thing that, that um, is interesting is that I think people have the impression that model fitting is something that should be automated, right? I mean, the whole kind of machine learning sort of drive is, is that, that, you know, really, you should just be able to press a button, and 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 the parameters come out at the bottom, and and it's all good. And I'm I, I'm very much um, against that. Um, so one one thing I am a, one thing the first thing to say, I guess, is ideally you should keep your model away from the data for as long as possible. Um, so the moment you you actually, the, the, you know, there's the the most tempting thing in the world is to. I've got a new idea. I've got some data. I'm going to test it and see if I've made money or not. That is literally the last thing you should do, um, because the moment you've done that, you're you're going to be opening yourself up to um, what I call uh, implicit fitting, which is basically where you you you've got an account curve. It doesn't look good. You say, "Oh, I won't do that." Um, well, you've you basically made a fitting decision, but you've not made a fitting decision in an in an in a controlled way. You've you've done it in an uncontrolled way. You've and it's an in, effectively an in-sample fit. So you want to push that decision off as far into the future as possible. So the, the first thing I do actually is focus more on the behavior of the model rather than on the, the profitability. So I'll be looking at things like, does this model capture the effect I want it to capture? Are the trading costs reasonable? Um, do, do, does the holding period reflect the, the, the sort of effect that I'm trying to capture? So for example, if I've got a model that's trading every day, but it's looking for six month trends, well, that suggests that some kind of smoothing would be in order before, you know, before continuing. Um, and what I will try, what I will do is one of two things. What, I can either, if appropriate, I'll use data that's completely random to make those kinds of decisions. Um, and it may be not completely random, but for example, I might actually create data that has trends in it, like six month trends up and down, plus some noise. Um, and it's completely unrealistic, but it can allow me to answer the question: Well, does this capture six-month trends? Because look, here's a six-month trend. Does it? Does it? Is it capturing that trend? Yes or no? You know. So that's you know that that's the base basic thing because it's very easy to to construct something that doesn't do what you expect it to do. Um, the other thing, if I can't do that, it's not always possible. I'll I will use real data, but I will limit myself to a single market, and I won't be looking at profitability. I will be looking at I might take a five-year snapshot of a single market, um, and I'll just just look at um, you know the buying and selling behavior, the holding period, and, and and sort of make sure that that's doing what I expected to do. Um, now, the, the then what I want to do is to um, once I'm happy with the model's behavior, I then want to see whether it's any good or not. Um, but I won't I will won't test the, the the thing independently. I'll just drop it into basically a, ma a massive portfolio optimization with all the other signals I've got, 
And what that will do is, is it will then effectively allocate some risk capital that, to that model. And obviously, if it's a good model, then the risk capital will be high at the end of the backtesting period. And if it's if it's low, then then obviously it's a poor model. And I, if it's below a certain threshold, there's, there's not really any point implementing it. Because I mean, you know, if you've got, say, 50 models and average of 2% risk capital, well, if one of them ends up with 0.01% because it's so shockingly poor, then there's no there's no point in implementing it and you, you're not going to be achieving anything. You're just going to be writing code for the sake of it. Now, the important thing is that that, that, that decision as to how much risk capital to put into something is not based on me looking at an account curve. It's based on a fitting process, which is controlled. And that means I can do two things. Firstly, I can make sure that it's robust and it's it's allowing for the amount of uncertainty in, in, in the data, which, and as I've talked about, that's much bigger than you think it is. And secondly, it can be a purely backward-looking thing with no in-sample information polluting it. Um, now, the reason I can do this is because my models are all structured effectively as linear-weighted combinations. So... You know, it's a very, I've got lots of Lego building blocks. I, I combine them in linear weights using a robust portfolio optimization process. Um, and that means that the, the, the actual resulting behavior can actually be quite complicated, complex, but the, the, it's made up of things that individually are quite simple. So none of my individual models are complicated. They're all pretty simple. Um, and actually, if you follow my blog, there's a lot of things where I'm posting something saying, oh, look, this is interesting but it's going to make my model too complicated. So I'm not going to bother doing it. You know, so it's like, I, I, I'm constantly spending, I spend a lot of my research time looking at things and deciding that, that no, that this is not actually, it makes a small but insignificant difference to my performance. That's not worth the complexity that it adds. So that that's kind of the, the way I'm thinking. I, I would only add something if it, if it does, if it adds something to my performance, if, if the, if there's a good thesis behind it, so it's not just a pure data mining exercise that's pulled something out that seems to work, and I have no idea why. I believe that can work, but you need to be much, much better at machine learning than I am. Um, and it also needs to be something that I can implement in a relatively simple way without making my system, for example, horrifically nonlinear. So walk me through the optimization a little bit, because I think I know um, a little bit about what, goes on, right? I, th I think you've got a regularization step where you are um, sort of taking each year independently. And then you're, what you want to do is sort of maximize the average performance relative to the dispersion of the performance from year, from like calendar year to calendar year, I think was one of the, um, the techniques that you were applying or did I... Miss, uh, the, miss, the, the expression on my face thing yeah. is maybe you've got me mixed up with somebody else. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it's funny because I've, I've got this second hand because we, <laughs> one of our internal um, uh, quants was using your, or a, a, a strategy that was informed by your systematic uh, investing book when, when he first joined us. And so he sort of walked us through the handcrafting that he had been yeah. doing. And that's what I... That's what I, so, I took from that. So yeah. Um, so the, the this handcrafting is um, so what 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 I noticed when I was when I actually watched how people actually fitted portfolios. This was a kind of a an anthropological observation. Um, everyone said that they fitted portfolios using some kind of fancy optimization process, um, 
And I remember very clearly the first time I watched somebody actually do this. Um, There's a guy called Simon. So Simon, if you're listening or watching, hi, Simon. I hope you won't mind me using your name in the story. But, but Simon, who was a much more experienced researcher than me, we, we implemented a new model. But Simon was the, the guy on the team that was responsible for allocating the portfolio weights to different instruments within our model. So, so he, that was his job. So he, he sat down and, and, and ran this optimization. Of course, it came out with, you know, like 20 instruments and two had a weight of 10%, the rest was zero, as you might expect. Um, and um, I, I sort of look, like, looked surprised and Simon said, it's okay, Rob, optimization is an art, not a science. Go and get yourself a cup of coffee and when you come back, all will be well. I came back and there were this beautiful set of weights. And what Simon had done was basically added constraints to the portfolio until the weights <laughs> looked like he thought what they should look like. And there's no disrespect to Simon specifically because I know loads of people who do do exactly the same thing and probably still do it now. Uh, and I've done it myself. Um, now, I thought, well, this is crazy. Why don't we just, if we're going to just put in, in portfolio weights that we think look right, well, let, let's just do that. But let's try and do that in a robust way. So if you actually have intuition about how portfolio should be optimized, well, the first thing you do generally as a human being is you, you put things into groups. So you say, well, I'm going to put all my bonds over here and all my equities over here. And I'm going to decide my top-down risk allocation. That's the first decision I have to make. Um, and the nice thing about that is, is from a mathematical point of view, by separating that into effectively three problems, a, a, a kind of how much in A, how much in B, and then how much within A and within B, those problems individually are much easier than the problem of doing A and B jointly. Um, so effectively, you end up with a hierarchical approach, and this is quite commonly used. So there's the HRP hierarchical risk parity, which is the the kind of the more sort of high-end version of what I do, I guess you could say, coming from more of a mathematical background rather than me with my anthropological kind of observation. Um, so the first thing you do is cluster. Um, and then within each of those clusters, obviously, you, you, you work down until you're at the point where you have a cluster small enough that you can allocate within, within that cluster in a robust way. Um, and actually, I used to use clusters of three, and now I'm down to clusters of two. Um, and basically, you allocate uh, in within a cluster. You give fifty percent risk weight to each asset because that's the optimal portfolio weight. If volatilities are the same um, and sharp ratios are the same, everything should get fifty-fifty. Um, the the um, the next step then is to um, to say, well, actually, if you do that, unless you've got a very you're very lucky, you're going to have bits of your portfolio where you're not going to have, you may, you, you don't have equal risk weights when you should have equal risk weights. So for example, suppose you've got the same number of bonds and equities, but your equity markets are much more diversifying than your bond markets, then you'll have less risk effectively it, than you should do um, between those two asset classes. So there's a correction I do, which is called the diversification multiplier, and it's just the, the inverse of the, um, the weight, the sort of outer product of the portfolio weights. And basically, if you've got two assets that are uncorrelated, then their diversification multiplier is going to be 1.41, which is the square root of two. If you've got two assets that are perfectly correlated, diversification multiplier will be one. So you multiply all your weights by these numbers, and that, that effectively then gives you equal risk allocations, uh, all the things being equal. Um, and then and then you can then apply a couple of overlays, and, and one, one is basically sharp ratios to say, well, actually, I've got information about sharp ratios, so I'm going to use that to tilt the weights and it is tilting. It's not like we said, it's not going zero to 100. It's tilting. Um, and basically, um, to do that, um, I use um, 
a kind of some, a little bit of maths which relates to the sampling uncertainty of the Sharpe ratio, um, this paper by Andrew Lowe about 25 years ago that, that introduces this quite simple formula. And I use that to to to, re to reflect both the, if two assets have different Sharpe ratios, but say I've only got a year of data, those weights are not going to move at all. But if those two assets have got very diff big difference in Sharpe ratios, and also if they're uncorrelated, which means that difference is more significant theoretically, and I've got 50 years of data, well, it's quite plausible that can make quite a big difference to the weights. Um, and this, this is all now being this is all being done in a kind of assumption that all assets have equal volatility, which in my futures world is is correct, but in the, my long only world is not correct because I don't use leverage. So then I'd apply a fairly simple stage which maps from risk weights to cash weights. So that that's that's kind of where and it's evolved over the last few years. Actually, the methodology um, I made it more robust. I've, I've changed a few things like just making it two assets and made a few simplifications but it and it's not that dissimilar from the hrp but but there's a there's a few twists in there yeah it's sort of like robust risk parity yeah. times the probabilistic sharp ratio <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> so in, in, a, in a theory so one one thing um one lesson i like to talk a lot about is is about uncertainty because um, people have different views on uncertainty in markets. I, I was having a debate on Twitter with with some trend followers because I'm I'm kind of at this we're in this weird position where I'm on, on the edge of the trend following community, and they invite me to talk on their podcasts and stuff. But we we disagree <laughs> on a lot of things, um, and they they make this statement: "Oh, you know, well, the good thing about trend following is you're not making predictions," which I disagree with. But that's another discussion. Um, and um, this, you know, Jerry Parker, who who's um, you know this, this kind of big CTA guy, came on and said, "Well, you know, you know, Rob." Um, I won't try and do his accent. Um, the, 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 you know, the, the reason why we don't make predictions, unlike you do, the reason why we don't make predictions is because you know markets are very uncertain. I mean, yes, they are uncertain, but importantly, there are different degrees of uncertainty. Um, and if you think about the three statistics you need when doing portfolio optimization, which is mean, standard deviation, and correlation, um, actually, let's change that and say sharp ratio, standard deviation, and correlation. Um, standard deviations are very predictable, relatively speaking. If you regress, say, next month's standard deviation on last month's, you get an R-squared of about 0.25, which in finance is an amazing R-squared for a regression. Anyone who's listening knows about R-squares and regressions. That's really That means that's very, very predictable indeed. So that, that, that means you should, you should why things like risk parity are a good idea is because actually volatility is quite predictable. And that's even without doing anything fancy like using you know, implied option vol or the VIX as a, a secondary indicator or using a fancy Garch model or anything like that. Um, correlations are a little bit less predictable, um, and that's why using this hierarchical structure is a good idea because that's that brings in robustness and means you don't do things like if you have two assets say that are very highly correlated normally, um, you know portfolio optimization will do crazy things with those normally because it's not accounting for the fact that that, that you know th th those correlations aren't always going to be that level and when they break down, you know that's when you end up often with people losing a lot of money. Um, and the thing that's least unpredictable of all is a sharp ratio, which kind of makes sense, right? Because if you can predict sharp ratio, you'll be extremely wealthy. Predicting standard deviation just means you'll, you're less likely to go bust. It won't make you rich, sadly. Um, predicting sharp ratio is very hard, and that means any predictions you have about sharp ratio should, should not be affecting your, your portfolio as much. You shouldn't be putting as much um, into them, which is why I have this probabilistic layer in there as you say so basically what my thing does is assume i can predict standard deviations perfectly because i do i do risk 
a straight mapping from cash weights to risk weights. Sorry, the other way around. Assuming I can predict them perfectly. It assumes there is some difficulty predicting correlation. So I have got a robust structure in there to deal with that. And then I assume that predicting sharp reactions is really hard. So I have a full kind of layer of probabilistic uncertainty in there to, to, to reflect that. So it's reflecting those three degrees of uncertainty. Whereas, you know, if you just take a naive mark of its out of the box portfolio optimization, it doesn't know anything about uncertainty. It takes all the forecasts, point forecasts, assume there's no uncertainty in them at all. So it's it's a more nuanced approach. Well, yeah, I mean, we're we're obviously huge supporters of um, that type of probabilistic based optimization and robust optimization. I was curious whether you've run any well, I suspect you have. What 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 do you observe when you run your optimization on so this is at the at the total portfolio level that includes your probabilistic sharp estimates? Have you have you walked that process forward and observed how the relationship between your estimated probabilistic sharp ratio weights and the realized probabilistic sharp ratio weights and and do you observe that those relationships are meaningfully persistent over time i haven't exactly done that one thing i have done is um with with all three of these kinds of statistics i've i've done um you know things like saying well how does the r squared change with how much data with how much time you've got and things like that um what, what i have done for example is say well, let's take momentum i've said well as a way of illustrating actually the uncertainty. So you, if you had no information about anything, you'd basically just use unconditional estimates. And in fact, you probably, for sharp ratios, you wouldn't even bother using them. Um, but you basically, you know, if you, if you get some kind of unconditional distribution for sharp ratios, it has some certain shape. If you've got a, uh, a really good indicator, let's say that splits into, I think, you know, high or low states for momentum, say something like that, you still end up with distributions and they do and they overlap a little bit. Um, and that overlaps telling you actually, you know, you don't pull the handle completely. That this is this is about tilting your portfolio depending on the on the on the sharp ratio. Um, but it, it it's there is some meat there is there is some information there because obviously there's no information that the two conditional distributions will sit on top of each other and you wouldn't be able to see any difference between them. So I've done that. Um, the, the 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 difficulty with doing what you describe is there is so much noise that you know you, you're, if you're doing really really well you can you can you can make us you know your predictability in sharp ratios goes from an R squared of like 0.03 which is just noise to like 0.07 you know it's still a very very you're still not doing a great job of predicting sharp ratios but you only have to do a little bit better than 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 the unconditional noise to to do to have quite a decent portfolio return. So no, I haven't done that. It would be an interesting thing to do though. Uh, but I suspect it would be quite hard to to see much there. I mean, the, the statistics would be meaningful, but but um, uh, you know, it, I'm not sure that the, 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 there would be enough of a pattern there to make it a compelling pitch to look at. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we've we've sort of concluded that that actually is the hardest and most rewarding effort in finance. Those two things go together, right? Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, it is, it is just shockingly hard. I mean, it, it and, um, we don't really use, um, the, the, the linear models so much anymore, but even if just using like 
really constraining the degrees of freedom in your models and, and, and having a small number of models for each sort of call it feature family, right? So you've got a few carry models and you get a few seasonality models and you get a few trend slash momentum models and you're going to, and, and you're going to use 90% of the data and derive a probabilistically weighted expectation of future sharp ratio for the, for the remaining 10% um, and use a variety of different ob- objectives or, you know, target metrics to determine your optimal weights. And even using 90% of your data and some of this futures data, as obviously, you know, goes back to the sort of mid seventies um, to make those predictions. The R squareds are just vanishingly close, you know, small delta between between 0.5 and and the realization, right? And so it ends up you've got to you've got to use you got to sort of drill deeper into the the for example stuff like the the stability of the models through time, and then you got to have like nested versions of of these validation procedures in order to to figure out the right balance between you know, trying to be precise versus trying to, um, be robust. And like this, this is an almost endless, uh, rabbit hole, right. That, um, so, so I think the lesson is unless you want to spend all your time on this problem, which again, admittedly is the most rewarding problem in finance, um, being extremely humble about your ability to make strong, uh, tilts in that dimension is probably your best course of action. I mean, this is what I find interesting because I think a, a lot of people um, pay attention to things that they ignore things that are easy. Like it's easy to predict standard deviations, which means, for example, that risk par- and we've talked about this before. Uh, you know, risk parity should kind of be your starting point. Um, and people dismiss that because they they say things like, "Oh, well, you shouldn't invest in risk parity because you know you, that means you'll be putting too much of your portfolio in bonds, and everyone knows bonds are going to do badly." Which is basically making a pro- you know a point forecast with no no knowledge or understanding of probabilisticness in, 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 at all. So they're, they're they're saying you you shouldn't you should ignore this very predictable thing, which is standard deviations, while simultaneously saying that there is a, you know a very large predictability in sharp ratios because everybody knows that that this is what's going to happen to bond and equity prices. And I mean, yeah, sure, bonds look expensive now, but they've they've looked ex- they looked expensive eight years ago. But risk parity's done okay, so. You know, um, I'm not saying that risk parity is necessarily a great a great buy right now, but the the point is that the 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 structure of thinking that I like to use, based on evidence around predictability, leads you to really question a lot of the things that people say about about these things. Well, it's well, a Dunning Kruger effect happens. in full in full flight, right? Like the Dunning Kruger effect is one where somebody comes into the market, they see a nice little trigger, and they're like, I'm going to do 100% of that. So I'm either 100% in equities, as you said earlier. Or 100% in bonds, or 100% in commodities. As you start digging deeper, 100% in GameStop. And as you dig deeper, you're like, oh, I didn't know that. That's not going to work out for me every time. Maybe I shouldn't do 100%. And you go from 100, trying to predict the the future prices or sharp ratios, to saying, well, hold on a second, what's easy? You go down to correlations, then you go down to volatility, and then you realize, okay, we should actually start with risk parity. Start with that base case, because that's the, the one we have most confidence in. And then slowly build and tilt um, after that. So it just takes a takes a decade, a lifetime, and a professional lifetime to go from being a hundred percent certain to not being certain about anything at all. And using yeah, I mean, a probabilistic method. 
And the other, the other thing that that's kind of related, not exactly the same in terms of things that are easy, is risk premia. Like, doesn't require yeah. any skill to collect risk premia. Um, maybe requires a certain, amount, you know, a certain amount of operational things you've got to do to understand, you know, and you've got to maybe do things like short stocks, which you can't do very easily. A lot of these things you can do through ETFs now anyway. But but just collecting risk premium. I mean, people people say to me, you know, what, what's your your skill? I'm like, I, skill. I'm not sure I've got any skill. I collect a bunch of risk premium. I try and do it in such a way that in a robust way, which means I'm I'm not making silly mistakes like paying too much for execution or overfitting my models. But you know, a large percentage of my returns is is just collecting risk premium. There may be a, a tiny amount of something special in there but it's a much smaller proportion than most people realize i think i think the other thing that's missed is the idea or the understanding that when you've taken those lower building blocks that you have higher confidence in and you've built a maximally diversified portfolio when you tilt the portfolio you are likely increasing the standard deviation of the portfolio and have to have a you have to be more right because you've imparted this tilt and that tilt takes away from the diversification. So the least likely thing that you believe you can predict, i.e. sharp ratio, you have to have a really high confidence in that because you're giving up the other two layers. And I, I, I think that's just absolutely lost. People don't understand. And this is kind of the core idea of you start with risk parity. And once you understand this maximally diversified portfolio and you lever it up to whatever risk that you can tolerate when you step away from that you are embedding a you're embedding a prediction of a sharp ratio which you have a much lower confidence in than the other components of inputs for the portfolio yeah, and it's yeah, a I higher think, hurdle than people think that's right i think, I think it's not I people think. think they they're layering returns right they think okay i start with my base care and then i'm going to layer this return but what's actually happening is you're taking away the rebalance premium when we talk, talk a lot. And so you're adding an and expected return with less. Yeah, the diversity, which leads to the to rebalance premium. Yep. You're taking away from this. And what you're adding needs to be, the hurdle is what you're taking away. So you're not layering yeah. anything. You're losing I mean, something go, and you'd better be gaining something really big to do better than the base yeah. case. Yeah, I mean, it goes, back, it goes back to the very first discussion we had where I say, well, like, you take some of your portfolio and you, you use that for, say, opportunistic stuff what have you well the, the 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 kind of hurdle rate on that it's not zero it's what you would have made is what you expect Correct. to make on, on what you've already got um so so um you you need to be very convinced as you say you need to be very convinced that this is absolutely the right thing to do and that's why and that that knowledge that that this is quite different what i'm about to do is gonna be quite hard to get right is what should make you say well i'm not going to put 100 percent of my portfolio into this crazy thing I'm going to put this much in because then, then because I know I'm I'm pretty confident this is a good idea. I'm confident enough I'm going to do some of this, but I'm 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 no means arrogant enough to think that I can I can take 100% of my portfolio. I'm going to limit it to five percent or ten percent or, or whatever. Um, and the I mean, there's a lot of jargon in the in the investment industry that 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 kind of is is confusing, misleading. And I mean, you guys are old enough to remember this idea of core and satellite, which which. Um, it's kind of gone out of fashion now, but there was a there was some kind of that that actually I found quite a helpful way of of thinking about the world. Like basically, you start with this, 
and what you we can have and, and you obviously with what we start with we have a big debate about and then you do a bit of this on top and, and again we can have a bit of a bit of a debate about that but it it's not it's it's a different approach from as you say that the idea of of layering things up i mean i remember a discussion i had with somebody during the last market crash and, and the guy said well you know i'm 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 no idea what's going to happen so i've gone 100 percent into cash i'm like well, that's a huge decision. You're making yeah. a huge. You're actually a confident making, expression in what's going yeah, to happen. Yeah, you have actually made a much bigger decision, a much bigger statement about what you think is going to happen than I have. Going from going for, I think I went going to say fifty percent cash or, or yeah. whatever. I you know at the time. And then you and said, if instead of cash, to... you should buy a hundred percent Bitcoin, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, instead of this is the point I was trying to make earlier on when you were you were talking about those subtle changes you had made in the portfolio in March 2020. Right, they were subtle, and and they absolutely understood the trade offs that we're talking about now, and they understood that you understood the humility with which you need to think about those outside tilts, and that that's I think it, that that point can't be emphasized enough. I think as we yeah view. I, yeah, so I I guess we've kind of we've got you've got the systems trading that embodies the idea of uncertainty in this way we've described and and then the kind of as i said the the main evolution in my thinking has been the fact that i now f apply the same level of understanding of uncertainty the, to the kind of meta meta part which is actually in terms of how i design the system and how i backtest it so it's not just that i have a system that embodies the fact that the world is uncertainty and there's different levels of uncertainty and and, and you you know you you go with the things you can predict the most, but I also similarly, you know, try and more so than when I was working for AHL, actually, my only, if, if, if I've had any evolution, it's that I apply that skepticism and uncertainty to the actual process of constructing these things as well in a, in a, in a, much, in a much greater way, I'd say, hopefully. And, and you, went, you went over sort of asset class inclusion, um, and we didn't dig into that too deeply, but I, I wouldn't mind doing that now in, in the context of Rodrigo mentioned the, the evil word Bitcoin. But how, you know, it's a trillion dollar asset class now, but maybe that's a good example or a bad example. But how long or how do you think about asset class inclusion at the, you know, sort of the first level? And when it comes to new assets that might impart some different exposure to some other risk that you would be hedging by buying that particular asset, how, how do you think about inclusion? When does something qualify? What, how long does it take? Because you, you talked about you know having something that only has a year history. Well, how do you know anything about that asset class? So you can talk a little bit about that, the asset class inclusion side, and what are the sort of um, hurdles that have to be overcome for inclusion? I mean, it, it's a difficult one. and and Because um, actually, my, my portfolio is relatively simple in that it effectively only has three asset classes in it. It's got bonds, equities, and then it's got this futures trend following account, which I kind of treat as an asset. Um, and because that account has um, within it, say, commodities, um, it's so it's kind of picking up things that other people might want to get through, for example, buying commodity ETFs, which, you know, was the, the fashion 10 years ago, less so now perhaps. Um, so there are things that aren't in my portfolio, like, for example, you know, things like private equity aren't in my portfolio, um, things like, I mean, generally speaking, there are quite a few asset classes that I would not mind accessing, but the, the, um, the, the, the sort of costs of doing so, um, which could be something as simple as doing it through a closed-end fund 
that they tend to have quite high charges. So one of the things I talk about a lot in my Smart Portfolios book was this very difficult thing where there are quite a few things that look good, but actually to, to, a, re to a retail investor, unless you've, you've got a lot of money and you're do, able to do things like directly invest in, say, 10 private equity funds, which, you know, to get diversification, because just putting your money into one private equity fund for me would be just too risky. Um, so you need quite large amounts of money to be at the stage where you can write 10 checks to private equity funds. So you then, OK, well, what do I do? I'll go via the ETF route. Well, it's great the ETF route is available now. But then I look, you look at the, the you know, the, the annual, the AERs and these things and, and the, the, the kind of tens or even over 100 basis points. And, and you think, well, is, am I really going to generate enough marginal improvement to my portfolio to justify that? And the other thing is that um, I, I think that there is um, a case to be made that if you do have some, let's say you knew nothing about private equity or nothing about anything at all, well, then, and you can afford to, then you yeah, absolutely have as many, in theory, I mean, we can get into details about things like Bitcoin, but in theory, have have all these things in your portfolio, have a bit of commercial property, have a bit of private equity, have a bit of this, have a bit of that. By all means, that is theoretically the best thing to do. But I'm in a slightly different position in that I know quite a lot about this weird asset class called futures futures trading. Um, and I can, I don't have to, I can invest in that without paying any fees. Um, I don't have to pay some guy, two and 20 to invest in that i can get it i can get it for the marginal cost of my time which works out to less than two and 20 um and especially when the system's running and just running by itself right um and and i probably i can't um, if i look at my performance over say seven years which isn't really long enough to be statistically significant but long enough to kind of start making a judgment i'm kind of ahead of the benchmarks but a bit behind the top, you know, I'm sort of at the bottom edge of the top quartile, say. So it's not it makes more sense for me to, on a marginal basis, put my kind of alternative asset allocation, if you like, into that rather than to, to sort of, you know, put $10,000 in a private equity ETF, for example, or something like that. Now, if I had a lot more money than I do, then maybe yeah, I would consider investing directly in private equity. But it, it doesn't make any sense for me, me at the moment. Um in terms of history, I, I, I don't think that's that important because, okay, um, the nice thing about the, the process I've just identified to you is, okay, volatility. So I need a month's worth of data. Since it's been trading for a month, that's enough for me to predict its volatility. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy. And in fact, even, even then, like you could probably, if you said to me, what's the volatility of this Turkish equity ETF? I'm going to guess about 30%. Because it's an emerging market ETF, equity ETF, and I may be wrong. I'm not going to be wrong by a, by a factor of two, though. Um, I might be wrong by it, it may be between twenty and forty. Maybe it's a bit higher because Turkey is quite interesting at the moment. But I'm not going to be wrong enough that the position is going to be way out of line. So, so you know, and because of diversification, because that Turkish ETF is going to be ultimately a small part of my portfolio. There's less kind of idiosyncratic risk in making the decision and putting it in with only with, with and, and potentially getting that wrong. So actually that doesn't bother me. And the nice thing about the, 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 the sort of probabilistic sharp ratio idea is, is actually it accounts for the fact there's not much data automatically. It says, well, you've only got a, you've only got a month of data. Well, that the fact that this, this thing may have done amazingly well in that month is, is kind of nice, but, but actually it's only going to tilt the allocation by a fraction of a basis point, you know, because it's statistically meaningless. Um, and then for correlation, I mean, you know, you, I, I tend to find that 
about six, correlation predictability peaks at around six months, say, but ish. I mean, a bit longer is nice. A bit longer, a bit shorter, not make much difference. So, but again, you, you know, you can probably guess roughly what the correlation of that thing is going to be with everything else as well. I mean, you know, it's could be quite correlated with other emerging market equities. You know, maybe a bit correlated with Turkish bonds. I mean, you know, so you you don't need very precise. This is one of the, the, the kind of things that, that's a bit weird. You don't really need very precise estimates of these things because your portfolio process should be robust enough that actually it's not sensitive. I'd be worried. I'd be really worried, actually, if if I had my Turkish ETF with one month of data and the allocation was here, if after two months the allocation was here, I'd be like, well, there's something wrong with your system. There's something wrong with the way you're allocating risk. Rob, I'd love to... Um... I'd love to get because we're we're closing in on an hour and a half, and I'd love to leave and leave listeners with something. With, with there's lots of practical stuff here, but but something really concrete. And I'm just curious um, if you were not. I mean, you obviously have the ability to trade your own accounts, and you and you have been doing so for many years, and and you've been using strategies that you that you fundamentally believe in. If you did not have the ability to trade your own accounts, um, how would you think about um, setting setting criteria for decision making, for allocating to other um, investors or or firms or funds or whatever that um, you know would 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 raise the probability of success for you. Uh, yeah, I mean, th- so in this hypothetical world, uh, do I still have all the knowledge, skills, and experience I've currently got? Let's, as- I- let's assume you do, but you just don't. Okay. You know, for some reason, you don't want to run your own account. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'd probably, um, I'd only go with fun. I mean, this is the interesting thing because actually my decision-making process would probably be quite qualitative um, because um, I, because of my limit. For example, if you show me a manager with a great track record over, say, five years, well, the, the statistical part of my brain is going, yeah, that's good, but it's probably not statistically significant. Okay, so... You know, you 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 know, I, I would potentially, if you showed me a manager who was supposed to be doing something, and actually his correlation with the benchmark was zero point two, I'd be like, oh, well, that's a bit suspicious. There's a lot of style drift there. You know, you know there's something a bit strange going on here. If you showed me a manager whose sharp ratio was exceptional, I wouldn't even consider him because most likely probability is that the next Bernie Madoff, may he rest in peace, wherever he's gone up or down. Um, <laughs> Um, the, 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 so, but, so there is, there will be a limited amount of kind of quantitative information that, that would be, you know, in that decision, but actually less than you might think it would be much more, I would, you know, if I, I would probably only invest with, with, in, in funds whose business model I understood, um, you know, and, um, and where I had a high degree of empathy with what they were doing. And that potentially would actually mean potentially a less diversified portfolio than maybe you would expect, because actually, I probably still have quite a big allocation to CTAs, even though, you know, because I understand that that business and, and I can read a prospectus and talk to people and, and, and get that qualitative information. And and I don't see the point of not using the, the skills and knowledge and understanding I have of that, say. Um, but I would be less likely to to invest in a in a discretionary long only equity manager because A, it's not a space I understand, and B, I'm more skeptical about whether they're really adding value beyond their fees that I couldn't just pick up through buying into the risk premium, value premium, things like that. So, so yeah, it's not a very kind of 
these are the equations I, and calculations I, actually, I would do. I actually think it aligns with, with what I believe investors do anyway, which is it, you align with you align with managers that align with your values. And I think the reason that works is because if you understand, if you have similar values and you understand that process better, that you're more likely to stick to those managers through the thick and the thin, because there is a shared, there's a shared belief system there. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, it totally makes sense to me that you would be more geared towards CTAs and tactical asset allocation or like, you know, core and explore right and then from there it's just the pedigree and the reputation of the managers that um that that you end up interviewing and and value investors do the same thing and momentum investors do the same thing and they call each other out and say value investing is garbage you know it's just, <laughs> at the end of the day i think the majority of in single investor alpha is their stick to itness and yeah and that's really most of it but don't don't take from this that that um because a lot, I think a lot of the problem with with people is is that they are, and that's naturally like a sales thing. Like if you work in the CTA industry, of course you're going to say to people you should have a high allocation to CTAs, and you know, and trend following is the best strategy, and all this kind of stuff. Um, but but you know, you should have a diversified portfolio of of risk premium, and and um, you know that that means you should still have allocations to equities and bonds you still have allocation to value you should still have allocation to to momentum yes but also to things like carry and some negative skew stuff that that's going to be a nice kind of counterbalance to the positive skew of of momentum and and um yeah i think i think that the main difference between me now and me in this imaginary world where maybe i've retired and i can't be bothered to run the futures portfolio anymore is 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 that the the asset allocation is probably going to not look that different um but, but um, it may be a, actually more diversified because I may, you know, be a bit more adventurous and have a few different types of funds um, to replace that kind of allocation to futures now, which obviously, um, you know, wouldn't exist in the future. So, um, so yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't just do a straight swap and sell, you know, sorry, sorry to my former uh, employers, but I wouldn't just get rid of that and buy AHL. Um, you know, I think, I think it would be, it would be an opportunity to diversify that a bit more, definitely. Nice. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Well, we're we're over an hour and a half in, and and Rob, it's getting late. What is it like? You're sneaking up on five there now on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, it's it's getting up to beer o'clock, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sure. sorry to you guys who are like, you know, a bit earlier in the in the working week working day still, but yeah. Well, we do that to people on the West Coast too, right? So we often have guests on the way, and so we're drinking, and it's still close to me in their time, and they're they're envious, so it's it's the same. Anyway, that this has been absolutely magnificent. I'm really grateful for your time and your usual candor uh, and humility. And, and um, I'm sure everybody learned a lot. And hopefully we can do this again sometime. Definitely. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Rob. Thank you very much. It's been a delight. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, guys. See ya. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media, 
And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time. Thank you.